After sailing 157 days, we beheld, looming up before us, on March 30th, 1820, the long-looked-for island of Hawaii. As we approached the northern shore, joy sparkled in every eye, gratitude and hope seemed to fill every heart. To learn the state of the islands and the residence of the king, the captain sent a boat on shore with an officer, attended by Hopu and Honolulu. Nearly three hours we waited their return. Then, as Mr. James Honeywell hastily came over the side of the vessel, we gathered closely around him. Quickly, with agitated lips, he said, Kamehameha is dead. His son is king. The kapus are abolished. The images are burned. The temples are destroyed. There has been war. Now there is peace. Lucy Goodale Thurston, 1872. Two hundred years ago, in the second decade of the 19th century, the world was a strange, fascinating, and precarious place. It was a time of global conflict and uneasy peace. A time of great environmental change. A time of disaster and miracles, anomalies and mysteries. It was a time when our modern world began to emerge and a time like almost no other in history. This podcast is about stories, true stories, of this remarkable era. This is the Second Decade Podcast. My name is Sean Munger. I'm a historian, an author, teacher, and podcaster. You can visit the website for this podcast at seconddecade.net. Second Decade is spelled out, all one word, two Ds in the middle. Thanks for joining me on this journey into the past. Episode 4, Hawaii In 1819, at the very end of the second decade, 22 young people, 10 men, 7 women, and 5 children, set out from Boston in a very small ship on a truly epic sea voyage, 18,000 miles, halfway across the globe, to Hawaii. Most of them were Americans, and all were missionaries. Most of them knew they would never return to the United States. In the time of the second decade, and with the world as it was then, these young people were, in 1819, seen by their peers, similar to how we think today, of astronauts trying to colonize Mars. These young people saw their purpose as one of enlightenment, bring the light of Jesus to the primitive, suffering people of the Pacific, who they thought so desperately needed it. They were willing to devote their lives to this project. Lucy Thurston, whose words you heard at the beginning of this episode, died in Honolulu in 1876, 56 years after her arrival. These people were, in the way Americans usually understand the word, pioneers. When the story of these young people is usually told, like it was famously by James Mishner in the 1950s, this is the way it's usually presented as an epic adventure. The white Americans who traveled to Hawaii at the end of the second decade were armed with spiritual and cultural certainty, and they carved out a life for themselves in a foreign land that must have seemed to them both beautiful and mysterious, inviting and hostile. But this telling of the story ignores a lot and obscures much of what really happened. Hawaii was not Mars. 
Unlike Mars, which is an arid, almost airless wasteland, Hawaii was quite densely populated, had a vibrant culture, a rapidly evolving political and cultural picture, and a cast of characters even bigger than life than Lucy Thurston, Hira Bingham, and the other pasty-faced New Englanders who stepped off the boat in 1820. Tonight's story is about those missionaries and about the world of Hawaii that they pretty much unknowingly blundered into at the end of the second decade. You can see it as an adventure story, but it's also, undeniably, a tragedy. Before we begin, I'd like to beg your indulgence, or perhaps forgiveness. Tonight's episode contains a lot of Hawaiian names and words. I don't speak Hawaiian. I'm doing my best uh, to pronounce them, but um, I'm sure that I'm going to get it wrong. So if you are native Hawaiian, or if you speak Hawaiian, um, please forgive me. I mean no disrespect. I'm just a haole from Oregon, and I'm doing my best. It's hard to start talking about the history of Hawaii in the second decade without talking about the rest of the world. That's why the vision of Hawaii I already exploded, the idea of it being Mars, sitting there waiting for white people to colonize it, that idea doesn't really make any sense. In fact, by 1810, when the disparate polities of the various Hawaiian islands were unified under the rule of King Kamehameha I, Hawaii was already plugged into the switchboard of the world, in a lot of different ways. In January 1778, a British explorer and naval officer, James Cook, sailed his ships, the Resolution and the Discovery, into Waimea Bay on the island of Oahu. Following in the great tradition of white people sailing around the world and quote-unquote discovering places that were already full of people, Cook triumphantly named the islands the Sandwich Islands, after Lord Sandwich, John Montague, the fourth Earl of Sandwich, who was then head of the British Admiralty. Yes, the person who invented the culinary tradition that we all know and love. Of course, the idea of Cook discovering anything was complete nonsense. Hawaii had been there for centuries, and had a highly sophisticated culture stretching back unbroken to at least the early Middle Ages. Also nonsense, at least I think it's nonsense, is the idea you see even in a lot of history books, that when Cook arrived, the Hawaiians assumed he was some sort of god, in this case the god Lono, and they gave him gifts and treated him deferentially because he was supposed to be the fulfillment of some sort of cosmic prophecy. Whenever this old chestnut appears in history, I roll my eyes. Incidentally, a similar story is told about the arrival of Hernan Cortes in Mexico in 1519, that he was supposedly mistaken for an Aztec god. It's a nice little story that colonizers like to tell themselves, because it makes indigenous people look silly and gullible. Although they gave him expensive gifts, probably in an attempt to buy his goodwill, to be honest, a lot of Hawaiians really weren't that impressed with Captain Cook. The fact that he left Hawaii in a box, or at least pieces of him did, should dispel any notions about how much the native Hawaiians loved Captain Cook. After all, he did take hostage the Ali Nui, the king, of the Big Island in revenge for some Hawaiians stealing one of his boats. Not a very good move for foreign relations, and it famously cost Cook his head. 
the Brits wisely decided to call it even and sailed away. Environmentally speaking, the brief visits by Cook and his friends, there were two separate visits, was the gift that kept on giving, and not in a good way. The Brits had introduced various diseases into the islands. Biologically speaking, the Hawaiians didn't have the same immunities to diseases that Europeans had been dealing with all their lives. This too is a repeat of what happened with Cortes and the Aztecs in Mexico in the early 16th century. Cook's arrival also opened the gates for European and American interaction with the Hawaiian Islands. The next ship to follow Cook's expedition came in 1785, and soon Hawaii was a great halfway point for ships to stop between China and points east, especially the United States. After the Revolution and the foundation of the American Republic, Americans got into the sea trade in a big way, especially with China. Silver and furs, many of them trapped in the Pacific Northwest, moved west across the Pacific. Silk and spices moved east. Sailors and crews also traded with the Hawaiians when they stopped. This is how tools and consumer goods, many of them made of iron, which was highly prized, started to filter into Hawaii. It's also how Kamehameha, an ambitious nobleman on the Big Island, began to build up an arsenal of European and American-made weapons, muskets, gunpowder, and cannons. The 1780s was a period of warfare between various island rulers, and Kamehameha, who dreamed of uniting all the Hawaiian islands under his own rule, saw the foreigners' superiority in weapons technology as the key to his strategy. He turned out to be right, mostly. The story of how Kamehameha united Hawaii, through diplomacy and a fair number of battles, is a pretty epic one, but we don't really have time to get into it here. Nevertheless, while Western weapons and expertise were an important part of his strategy, let's not overstate their importance. His victories were not due solely to Western weapons. Until the very end, the majority of his troops were armed with spears and daggers, traditional Hawaiian weapons. Kamehameha's inventiveness, his cunning and his expertise at inter-island politics and diplomacy, I think, were the real drivers of his conquest of Hawaii. He was a wooden spear, very sharp in its own right, but you might think of Western weapons as a kind of iron point at the very end of that spear. It certainly gave him an edge, but it was far from being the whole story. The final conquest, the last island that Kamehameha needed to add to his country, the island of Kauai, wasn't even taken by force, but by peaceful negotiation, more or less. Kauai was the last holdout against Kamehameha's authority, and the Big Kahuna was building up an armada of troops and war canoes to go finish off the ruler of Kauai, a chief named Kaumuali. Unfortunately, Kamehameha's plans were interrupted by an outbreak of disease, probably imported from China, that ravaged his forces. Even Kamehameha caught it, but he survived. In 1810, at the very beginning of the second decade, Kamehameha and his people on Oahu were about ready to try again. The army was reconstituted. Kamehameha had upwards of 30 foreigners working for him as weapons technicians and advisors, and he was making some serious bank from port fees collected from foreign ships that called at Hawaii and from the sandalwood business, which we'll get to in a minute. He controlled most of the trade throughout the islands, and just about all the chiefs swore loyalty to him, except this last guy, Kamuali, the king of Kauai. Incidentally, by this time, Kamuali 
had some Western guns of his own, and advisors too. Kamehameha, though, shrewd as he was, wondered if war was really inevitable. Kamuali'i was powerful, but he was outnumbered, and all the chiefs would benefit if the inter-island war stopped once and for all, because the constant strife was hurting trade with the foreigners. So Kamehameha started sending messengers quietly over from Oahu to Kauai to ask if Kamuali'i might be interested in striking some kind of deal. I say messengers, plural, because it took more than one try. The first guy Kamehameha sent over to Kauai, a chief named Kihei, was so well received by Kamuali, who gave him land and wives as gifts, that he wound up settling on Kauai himself and never went back to carry Kamuali's reply. Anyway, in the spring of 1810, a whole bunch of canoes were going back and forth between Oahu and Kauai, loaded with gifts, sort of a one-upsmanship contest of flattery. A pretty far cry from open warfare. The message that finally started to get through between the two kahunas was this. I, Kamehameha, would be absolutely delighted to accept the island of Kauai from you, Kamuali, but you have to give it to me in person. Kamuali, though, didn't trust Kamehameha, and he was afraid he'd be taken hostage and forced to give up Kauai as ransom. It was ultimately an American captain, one Nathan Winship, who brokered a solution. He'd bring Kamuali over to Oahu on his ship, the O'Kane, and leave his own mate on Kauai as a hostage. If anything happened to Kamuali during the negotiations, the first mate would get iced, and that would start a big brouhaha with the foreigners. Kamuali agreed. It turned out he shouldn't have been afraid of Kamehameha. When they met on the deck of the O'Kane, both decked out in beautiful flowered robes, Kamehameha was pretty gracious, though he was careful to have his war chief standing around just in case Kamuali'i forgot what the stakes were. There's a wonderful account of what was actually said between the chiefs. Kamuali'i said, quote, This is my gift at our meeting, the land of Kauai, its chiefs, its men, great and small, from mountain to sea, all above and below, and myself to be yours. Kamehameha replies, I shall not accept your land, not the least portion of your domain. Return and rule over it. But if our young chief makes you a visit, be pleased to receive him. By young chief, Kamehameha meant his son, Liholiho, then a strapping young kid about 13. What this exchange meant, its diplomacy after all, was that Kamehameha would not insist upon ruling the island of Kauai himself, and Kamuali'i could keep it, but he had to name Liholiho as his heir. Oh, there's also the matter of a small tribute that would have to be paid, but let's not obsess over the details. With this small conference, on the deck of an American trading ship, Kamehameha's life's work was accomplished. He finally had Kauai, and he didn't have to fight for it. The Hawaiian Islands were unified under a stable government. There was peace. I doubt Kamehameha's opposite number in France, Napoleon, who was at that moment rampaging across Europe spilling geysers of blood all over the place, could have done as well. Kamuali'i shouldn't have been afraid of Kamehameha, but he did have something to fear from some of his underlings. Some of the lesser chiefs under Kamehameha were pretty pissed at the arrangement. They'd been hoping either that there would be war and they could conquer Kauai, or Kamuali'i would be deposed and Kamehameha would give them, the chiefs, land on the island. 
At a huge luau on the beach that was planned as sort of a celebration for the deal, these chiefs decided to bump off Kamuali'i by putting poison in his rum. Somehow, one of Kamehameha's Western advisors, a Welsh sailor named Isaac Davis, got wind of the plot. He warned Kamuali'i, who wisely decided to skip the luau and sail back to Kauai. Warning Kamuali'i was the last thing Davis ever did. Somehow the poison meant for Kamuali'i ended up in Isaac Davis's glass. He promptly croaked. His grave, incidentally, is still visible in Oahu Cemetery in Honolulu. Kamuali'i, incidentally, generally kept his head down after 1810, but it seems that neither he nor Kamehameha fully trusted each other. Kamehameha seems to have been wary that Kamuali'i would go back on the deal and try to split off Kauai from the rest of the islands, especially when Kamuali'i started to get mighty friendly with the Russians who tried to build a base on Kauai in 1817. Thanks to Kamehameha's interference, they never finished it. The ruins of the fort, called Fort Elizabeth, is today a National Historic Landmark. Now, in more or less total control of the Hawaiian Islands, Kamehameha was a pretty wise and shrewd chief executive. One of his accomplishments was to unify and codify the legal system of the islands. The laws set down by Kamehameha were pretty progressive, at least by the standards of an absolute monarch. One of his most famous laws is called by a Hawaiian name that I'm not going to try to pronounce because I know I'll butcher it. In English, it's translated as the Law of the Splintered Paddle. The story goes that years ago, in the 1780s, Kamehameha was attacked by two fishermen, one of whom broke a paddle over his head and left him to die. After he achieved power, one of these fishermen was hunted down and brought before Kamehameha to receive punishment for this old crime. Kamehameha spared the man's life, stating, Let every elderly person, woman and child, lie by the roadside in safety. That became a legal edict, and those words, those exact words, still appear in the modern constitution of the state of Hawaii, adopted in 1950. The law of the splintered paddle has been interpreted as a forerunner of the modern laws of war, also what we now call human rights law, a concept that didn't really gain currency in the Western world until the 20th century. Kamehameha also set out to shore up the economy of the islands. The whole business of charging foreign ships a toll to tie up at Hawaiian ports was fine, but what the country really needed was an export trade. A valuable export would wire Hawaii into the world economy. Kamehameha knew this, and fortunately there was a very valuable export the islands provided, and which was under his direct control, sandalwood. Sandalwood was tremendously valuable. This is a special kind of wood, actually it's a parasite that grows on the root of other trees. Uh, and this wood is infused with a very fragrant natural oil. Sandalwood was in demand, particularly in Asia, because Buddhists associated its scent with the great Amitabha Buddha. And also, Hindus in India anoint themselves with sandalwood oil. Hawaii, as you remember, has trade going both ways, from North America to the east and Asia to the west. Foreign traders first found sandalwood stocked away in forests in Hawaii about 1790, and there was some trade in the stuff, but it really took off in 1812. That year, three American fur traders decided to take a shipment of sandalwood logs to the port of Guangzhou, then known as Canton in China. They made a fortune. They promptly sailed back to Hawaii 
and signed a 10-year deal with Kamehameha to be the exclusive exporters of sandalwood. During the 18-teens, sandalwood was Hawaii's chief export, and it made Kamehameha, his family, and the lesser chiefs quite rich. There wasn't much gold or silver coin in Hawaii in the early years, and sandalwood became kind of an unofficial currency. Unfortunately, by 1825, six years after Kamehameha's death, sandalwood trees were almost wiped out in Hawaii. Kamehameha's foreign policy was also pretty shrewd. He understood that Western powers were a potential threat. Three empires, the British, the Russians, and the new United States, were all converging in the North Pacific, competing with each other for land, natural resources, economic advantages, and so forth. All three of these countries meddled in Hawaii to one degree or another, and probably all three had designs of extending their sovereignty over the islands, whether officially or not. Kamehameha was the most friendly with the British. We've already seen that many of his Western advisors, like the unlucky Isaac Davis, were Brits. Kamehameha also made friends with a British naval officer, Captain George Vancouver. You've heard of him, I guarantee it. This guy left his name all over the place, especially in the Pacific Northwest. Both the cities of Vancouver, Washington, across the river from Portland, Oregon, and the much bigger city of Vancouver, British Columbia, are named after him. In fact, the reason why British Columbia was at one time British Columbia has a lot to do with Vancouver. Less well known is Vancouver's adventures in Hawaii. Early in his career, Vancouver was a midshipman aboard one of Captain Cook's vessels on that fateful voyage to Hawaii in the 1770s. In 1793 and 1794, Vancouver returned to Hawaii, now in command of his own expedition. He became a personal friend of Kamehameha, and in fact Vancouver lent his ship's carpenters to Kamehameha to help him build his own western-style schooner, which he called the Britannia. There was some talk during Vancouver's expeditions of Great Britain formally taking possession of Hawaii, which supposedly would have meant British forces intervening on Kamehameha's side in his then ongoing wars to unify the islands. It never took, at least not officially, but after unifying the islands, Kamehameha sought good relations with the British and sent gifts to King George III on more than one occasion. Vancouver was a very pious Christian. His involvement with the islands and with Kamehameha brought with it the specter of another form of conquest, not involving ships or muskets or cannons, but a spiritual conquest by Christian missionaries. This issue was, at the end of the second decade, about to take the history of Hawaii in an entirely new direction. It's not entirely clear to me why British missionaries didn't make it to Hawaii before American ones did. The sources I used to research this episode conflict with each other on this point. In one account, George Vancouver, that's the British sea captain who was so chummy with Kamehameha at various points in his career, talked up how awesome the white man's god was, and how great it'd be if he could send some nice, friendly English people to the islands to teach the Hawaiians all about him. Vancouver died in 1798 in England, supposedly before he could return to Hawaii with missionaries in tow. 
Another account I read has Vancouver being so impressed at the pious devotion of Kamehameha to the traditional native Hawaiian gods that he, Vancouver, gave up the idea of trying to convert the Hawaiians. I don't know which is the real reason, but it's true English missionaries did not visit Hawaii during the reign of King Kamehameha, so far as I know. Kamehameha was very religious. That's absolutely true. Hawaii before 1820 was ruled by a very complex web of intertwining religious and social mores. This system was called kapu, and its purest form was a strict code of conduct that enforced a kind of feudalism and kept political and economic power in the hands of Hawaii's ruling elite, the chiefs of which, the kahunas of which Kamehameha was at the top. Kapu governed everything from sexual behavior to what kind of food you could eat. It was forbidden, for example, for women to eat bananas under most circumstances. Pork was also considered sacred because it was thought to represent the body of the god Lano. Also, men and women could not eat meals together. These rules, called taboo, is how that word got into our own language. A taboo, of course, is a social rule you break at great cost as the Brady family learned in that famous TV episode in the 70s. Incidentally, the kapu was also a system of environmental regulation. There were, for example, certain taboos against overfishing, or other excessive exploitation of environmental resources. The penalty for breaking one of the taboos was usually death. Hawaiian priests and the chiefs enforced the system pretty rigorously, but as more and more foreigners appeared in Hawaii during the second decade, the whole kapu system was beginning to show some signs of strain. Foreigners, for example, generally didn't observe the taboos, or at least enforcement against them was pretty spotty. On the other hand, natives who worked with the foreigners, scouts, stevedores, whatever, they were subject, and the constant breaking of these rules made the cost of doing business in Hawaii a little higher than it otherwise would have been. The restrictions of the kapu system fell especially hard on women, this was definitely a sexist and hierarchical social system designed to keep women subordinate to men. Hawaiian women chafed under these rules. The wives and daughters of Hawaiian chiefs started to look around for an excuse to alter or abolish the kapu system. As it turned out, the perfect chance arrived in the spring of 1819. Kamehameha was dying. He'd been a political and military leader for almost 40 years now, and he had totally brought Hawaii into the modern world. It's not clear what he died of, but the reports say he had a long illness. Cancer, perhaps. Who knows? On May 8, 1819, at about 2 o'clock in the morning, he died. His last words are said to be, to his chiefs and his wives, Move on in my good way. We don't know where Kamehameha was buried. His body was taken away by two advisors and hidden somewhere. This is a Hawaiian custom to preserve the mana, or the power, of a person. Of course, Kamehameha had more mana than anyone. Upon his death, power should have passed to his son and heir, Liholiho, who was then about 22. But remember how I said that powerful Hawaiian women were looking for an excuse to abolish the kapu system. Before Kamehameha, wherever he ended up was even cold, the favorite of his 20-odd wives, Ka'ahumanu, was plotting to intervene. In Hawaiian tradition, when a great king died, there was a period of pollution, a couple of days when his successor was supposed to be in seclusion before showing himself. Liholiho waited the customary few days, then showed up at Kailua Lakona, the traditional capital on the big island, for his coronation as King Kamehameha II. 
It's reported that he wore a British tricorn-style hat along with the red-feathered cloak traditional to Hawaiian rulers. During the ceremony, Ka'ahumanu made a pretty important announcement. She claimed that Kamehameha had created a brand new office for her, called Kuhina Nui, a sort of chief advisor to the king, a regent more or less. Whether Kamehameha really did that, or whether she came up with it on her own as a way to set herself up as the puppet master pulling her son's strings, we don't know for sure. In any event, she suggested at the coronation that Liholiho disregard the taboos. She also made it clear that she and Liholiho would essentially be co-rulers. Liholiho was gobsmacked, to say the least, and he didn't really say anything. In the months that followed, Ka'ahumanu and one of the other widowed queens, Keopulani, decided to force the issue. They invited Liholiho to a grand feast. It was pretty symbolic that at the feast set out for the women to eat were all the foods that the Kapu system said they couldn't have, pork, coconuts, certain kinds of fish, and bananas. The queens were flagrantly defying the taboos and at the king's own banquet. Liholiho got the message. At these kingly banquets, to observe taboo, men ate in one place and women in another. During dinner, Liholiho got up, walked over to the women's area, and started chowing down on the pork prepared for them. The king of Hawaii, the heir of Kamehameha, had just broken one of the great taboos. The fact that no one was going to get killed over this was a pretty big deal. That was pretty much it for the Kapu system. There was a revolt against this, but we're not going to get into that. Liholiho formally abolished the Kapu, which took down with it the whole pantheon of Hawaiian gods. This is known as the Ainoa, and it's chiefly what Liholiho, Kamehameha II, is known for in history. As it turned out, Liholiho and Ka'ahumanu had picked a hell of a time to try to upend the social and religious system that had governed Hawaii for centuries. At the very moment they sat down to eat together, something they could never have dreamed of was brewing on the other side of the world, and it would change Hawaii forever. This story has, up until now, been mostly about Hawaiians and their relations with foreigners who came into the islands. Many foreigners did, but it wasn't a one-way street. Hawaiians were going out into the world. One of them who did was a young man named Henry Obukaya. Henry was born on the Big Island in 1792. In 1807, at the age of 15, Henry, an orphan, hooked up with an American sea captain, Captain Brittnell, who brought him and another Hawaiian kid to New York City. It was pretty unusual to see a native Hawaiian in New York City in 1809. Henry and his companion, Thomas Hopu, drifted around New York, reportedly drinking and rubbing shoulders with sailors and other working-class people, before somehow he wound up on the front steps of Yale College, destitute, and reportedly complaining, no one give me learning. The good New England folks who decided to step up to the plate and give him learning were, of course, evangelical Christians. In 1816, a Congregationalist church organization, the American Board of Commissioners for Foreign Missions, established a school in Cornwall, Connecticut, for the education and Christianization of quote-unquote heathens. Henry Obukaya, who converted to Christianity in 1815, wound up at this school. At least it was a multicultural student body. In addition to Henry and Thomas Hopu, there were eight Cherokees, three Stockbridges, 
two Choctaws, two Oneidas, one Tahitian, one from the Marquesas Islands, and a Malaysian. The foreign mission school was an early forerunner of the terrible boarding schools to which Native American children were forced to go during the later 19th and 20th centuries. At any rate, Henry Obukaya became a young preacher, going around to various churches in New England, begging congregations to send missionaries to his home in Hawaii to bring the light of Christ, as he saw it, to his people. He also translated the book of Genesis into Hawaiian. Presumably anyone who set out for a mission in Hawaii would be obliged to give Henry a ride back to the islands, which, at about 18,000 sea miles, was no small ask. Unfortunately, no one took Henry up on his offer in time. In the winter of 1818, he caught typhus and died. After he was dead, he did finally get his wish to return to Hawaii. In 1993, his family, who still lives in Hawaii to this day, arranged for his almost 200-year-old grave to be exhumed, and he was reburied on the Big Island. Just think about that for a moment. This kid, who was just 26 when he died, left Hawaii on a sailing ship and returned in the cargo hold of a jet 186 years later. That's a hell of a round trip. Anyway, there was a movement of religious fervor going on in New England and the Mid-Atlantic states during the second decade. It's called the Second Great Awakening, and I may do an episode on it. In this climate of religious fervor, Henry's death made some pious Christians, especially young ones, feel guilty that Henry never got his wish to return with missionaries. Guilt was one thing that New England Christians of the early 19th century were very good at, so there you go. In the summer of 1819, two young men, Hiram Bigham, age 29, and Asa Thurston, age 31, both students at Andover Theological Seminary in Newton, Massachusetts, volunteered to the American Board of Commissioners for Foreign Missions to travel to Hawaii and spearhead a Christian mission there. The Board of Commissioners agreed to send them if they could round up some more people. Eventually, they did. A number of men, all fairly young, volunteered to join the Hawaii mission. Some of them undoubtedly got caught up in a religious fervor, the feeling that it was their God-given duty, as Christians, to civilize the heathens of Hawaii, a people of which they knew nothing, except what Henry Obukaya had told them. One fellow, Samuel Whitney, was a sophomore at Yale College, and he dropped out of school to join the mission, expecting he'd finish his studies and become officially ordained as a minister on board the ship to Hawaii. Aside from Daniel Chamberlain, who had a wife and five young children that he decided to take with him to Hawaii, most of these guys weren't married, and that was a problem. You weren't going to send a bunch of males in their 20s and early 30s, however pious, off to a land rumored for its beautiful naked women and expect them to, as Christians say, resist temptation. So part of the preparations included finding women for these people to marry. This wasn't so easy. Several of the early missionaries wrote memoirs. In Hiram Bingham's, he talks about how his family, friends, and the communities of the volunteers were almost unanimously opposed to them going. It was too far, it was too expensive, it was foolish, they'd probably never return. There were a lot of objections. Can you imagine your son coming to you out of the blue and says, Hi, Mom and Dad, I've decided to join a mission to a distant Pacific island. I leave next month, I probably won't be back for the rest of my life. Oh, and by the way, I'm getting married tomorrow. You have to feel for the wives, too. In Marlborough, Massachusetts, on September 17, 1819, a young woman named Lucy Goodale, aged 23, a school teacher, received an unexpected visit from her cousin, William Goodell. Lucy was in pretty bad shape that fall. 
her beloved sister Persis, with whom she'd been very close, had died three weeks earlier. There was obviously some kind of collusion between Goodell, the cousin, and Lucy's father, Abner Goodale, deacon of the local church. William, the cousin, you see, was a classmate of Asa Thurston, one of the volunteers, and he brought the deacon the idea of marrying Lucy off to Thurston to enable him to go to Hawaii on his mission. The cousin and the father seem to have pressed Lucy pretty hard to agree. In her own memoirs, Lucy quoted a letter the cousin wrote to her. Quote, when I say I hope cousin Lucy will be of the next company to go to the heathen, instead of imputing to it any desire of never seeing her again, she will rather think that I believe her to adopt from the heart the favorite language of Spencer, where he appoints, I'll go. Now who can argue with that? On September 24th, the day after the cousin first brought Asa Thurston over the, to the Goodale home to meet Lucy for the first time, she agreed to marry him. Meanwhile, Hiram Bingham, who was previously engaged, broke off his engagement with his fiancée, probably because she wouldn't agree to go to Hawaii with him, and quickly got engaged to a girl who would. Her name was Sybil Mosley, but in short order she was Mrs. Hiram Bingham and packing hastily for a sea voyage that would, by the best estimate, take about six months. They weren't going to be traveling in style. The best the Board of Commissioners for Foreign Missions could do was to charter a small brig, the Thaddeus, for $2,500, not counting provisions. This ship was not exactly the Queen Mary. The Thaddeus was tiny, so small that Lucy Thurston in her memoirs says the compartment she shared with her husband was six feet by six feet. That's not even the size of a modern prison cell. Oh, and it was packed floor to ceiling with trunks and chests and provisions. They even brought a prefabricated house donated by a Boston construction firm for the women and families to live in. They heard that all the Hawaiians had were grass huts, and that just wouldn't do for proper New England wives, and the children they either already had, in the case of Mrs. Chamberlain, or were expected to push out once they got to Hawaii. On October 23, 1819, the Thaddeus left its dock in Boston, with the 17 missionaries and their kids, Captain Blanchard and his crew, on board, plus three young Hawaiians who'd been converted to Christianity. One of them was Thomas Hopu, Henry Obukaya's friend who had initially come over with him to the United States in 1807. Pretty much everybody at the dock, the families and friends of the missionaries, expected they were waving goodbye to them for the last time in their lives and most of them were right. The voyage of the Thaddeus to Hawaii sounds like one of the most unpleasant sea voyages I've ever read about in history, and with all due modesty, that's no small boast. Within three days, everybody was seasick, horribly seasick. All the surviving memoirs agree on this. The missionaries and their kids were veritable fountains of puke for weeks on end. Imagine being sick, that sick for that long, nothing but some potato soup to eat if you could eat it all, writhing around in puke-filled agony on a little wooden shelf in your room, six feet square, probably smelling like vomit or crap most of the time. The whole ship must have stank. There weren't just human passengers, there were also dogs, cats, chickens, ducks, and pigs on board. And yes, animals get seasick just the same as humans do. In January, more than 90 days out, imagine 90 days of that torture, the ship finally rounded Cape Horn, which the accounts agree was the worst part of the voyage. Sailing ships used to get pounded to pieces trying to make the Cape Passage, or the Straits of Magellan, 
and they were pretty lucky that the Thaddeus didn't end up as nothing more than a couple of pieces of vomit-stained driftwood. The Pacific, though, is a lot calmer, and the voyage was much easier after that. There's a famous incident related in both Lucy Thurston and Hiram Bingham's memoirs of an episode where Asa Thurston was almost attacked by a shark while swimming over the side of the ship. This memory stood out for both of them even decades later. On March 30, 1820, after nearly six months at sea, Thaddeus arrived at Hawaii. The summit of Mauna Kea was the first thing they saw. The ship put into the harbor at Kauaihe, on the west side of the Big Island, which was then Hawaii's principal port. The quote that opened this episode is one of Lucy Thurston's recollections of that day. The first thing the missionaries learned about Hawaii was of the death of Kamehameha, the accession of Liholiho, and the abolishment of the Kapu system. By blind chance, the missionaries had arrived at the moment of maximum vulnerability for Hawaiian society, the rough transition from Hawaii's medieval and early modern social and religious system to an uncertain future where no one was sure whose gods were still worthy of worship or who still held the power over the islands. All they knew was that things were changing. This is a story ultimately about imperialism. Despite their intentions, the missionaries were imperialists. Their memoirs are filled with statements about how dark and savage they thought the Hawaiians were, and how righteous their cause was of converting them to Christianity, and ultimately to American-style capitalism, a process that was, as we've seen, already well underway by the time they got there. The missionaries did what they came to do. They built churches, established schools, gained lots of converts, and had lots and lots of children, most of whom became sort of a white aristocracy in the Hawaiian Islands. The names of these missionary families, Thurston, Bingham, Whitney, Loomis, Holman, they're all over Hawaii, on streets and churches and museums right down to the present day. Lucy Goodale Thurston died in Hawaii in 1876, never having returned to the United States. Her husband, Asa Thurston, died in Hawaii in 1868, having returned to the United States only briefly, twice. Hiram Bingham did eventually return to New England. He died there in 1869. Many of the others died in Hawaii, never having returned to the United States, and many successive waves of missionaries followed them. But wherever missionaries go, others follow. Settlers, merchants, cheap labor, and eventually soldiers. This is how missionaries are the foot soldiers of imperialism. In his novel Hawaii, which James Mishner wrote in the 1950s, using, I'm certain, many of the same sources that I used in writing the script for this episode, he says that the missionaries said of themselves and each other, they came to Hawaii in darkness and left it in light. Mishner also adds the rejoinder of the native Hawaiians. Of course they left Hawaii lighter. They stole everything that wasn't nailed down. The story of the cultural collision between the Christian missionaries and the Hawaiians under Kamehameha II and later rulers is very long and complicated, a story that's beyond the scope of this show but its roots are firmly in the second decade. And that's why I chose this subject for tonight's episode. Thanks for listening. If you like this podcast, please share it, tell somebody about it, mention it on your social media, your Facebook, your Twitter, your YouTube, whatever is your thing. You can find me on Twitter at Sean Munger, there's an underscore there, and my website, seanmunger.com. My historical sources for this episode include 
Islands of Destiny by Olive Windette, published by Charles E. Tuttle Company, 1968, a book I have some problems with, to be honest. Ruling Chiefs of Hawaii by Samuel Kamakau, original edition published 1871. Hiram Bigham, a residence of 21 years in the Sandwich Islands, published by H.D. Goodwin, Canon Dagwood, New York, 1855, and Lucy G. Thurston, The Life and Times of Mrs. Lucy G. Thurston, published by S.C. Andrews, Ann Arbor, Michigan, 1872. Those last two digitized by Google Books. Wonderful resource, Google Books. Special guest voice, Hilary Maxson as Lucy Goodale Thurston. We have some original music tonight by Carl K. Thanks, Carl. Music credits. The main theme of this podcast is titled String Impromptu Number 1 by Kevin McLeod of Incompetech.com, used under Creative Commons by Attribution 3.0 license. This podcast was written and recorded by me, Sean Munger. Good night. Sick of being upsold at gyms? My guy, you're currently a base member. For $90 more, I can upgrade you to our Shred membership. For $130 more, you'll be a swole member. And for just $300 more, you'll reach Sweat Platinum. At Planet Fitness, you'll get energy without the upsell. Never pushy, always free fitness training and equipment for every workout. It's fitness that fits your budget. Join Planet Fitness for just $1 down and $10 a month. Cancel anytime. Deal ends Friday, May 10th. See Home Club for details.